welcome to Terror Talk with Shannon and Kathy. Hello. Hi, how are you? We're in a Halloween hangover. We are. I mean, not literally. I mean, I'm not literally hungover, but, you know, October is over. I, I realize that we're already in the second week of November, but I was still getting it over it. I, it's always the next day for me where I avoid the stores. I'm like, <laughs> I know you're just tearing everything down and putting Christmas up. Mm-hmm. And the little bit of Halloween decorations that are left are on this janky shelf in the corner, <laughs> 95% off. And it's sad to me. It it's is. like the land of misfit toys. I did actually buy some things on sale. Though, so. Yeah, I mean, there's a plus to it. It's just a little depressing. It is. Like, a little I gotta wait another 364 days. What? But luckily, we have Halloween all year round in the studio, well, and, and, and in the, our hearts. And now with you know the pandemic settling, mm. uh, you know more conventions and things we can go to. I was watching the news the other day and. They were saying if things continue to go the way that they do, including some of the medications now that they're, you know, um, potentially coming out, um, we might, the United States might be done with COVID by January 4th. Not done, I mean, it's always going to be there, but done with it as a real problem. Right. And I, I read an article that, and, and by the time this airs, you guys will know this, but our borders opened up on the 8th. Yep. And so... There's that. The borders opened up and people can travel. And there's some countries, of course, COVID vaccinations are skewed towards uh, people who have the means to have them, get them. But there are something like 50 countries that have a 10% or lower vaccination rate. And so what they've done is our government has put in a loophole meaning that you can qualify for it. It's usually qualify to come into the U.S. if you need to from those countries. If it's not for leisure travel, it's not for like general business, but they have a loophole where you can come in for, for specific reasons. So I'm glad there's that loophole as we get more and more of the world vaccinated. But yeah. I just heard from my uh, travel company this week, they up until, well, a couple of weeks ago, we were told we might not be able to do Rwanda. And it's going to happen. So, you know, things are changing, which is great. When do you have that scheduled for? March. That's right, March. I remember that's when you went last year or the year before. During spring break. I was going. I have that extra week of USC off. Got it. Yeah. Well, that's great. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. And, I, and I'm and i glad our borders are opening up to others as well. So that's... There's hope. Amazing. Yeah. Now I'm like, okay, so do I get a booster? <laughs> What's happening with the booster shots? It's probably time for a booster if I need one. I don't know. Uh, those still I'm remains sure to be let seen. You know. Remains to be seen. That's right working in mental health that won't be up to me no just tell me yeah. you have to do this <laughs> and, and it's it's quite possible that they might wait for those of us who are younger or don't have autoimmune stuff going on they might wait to see whether the booster lasts because we don't know yet right we don't know if the if it's a if the original shot lasts and, like, the, and those of us that got moderna our our percentage didn't drop that that much yeah so we we took the hit early and we the, got a in the strength hit. of it and then and then it'll last longer hopefully yeah or just more more effective i did want to mention though too on our discord with our patrons we had a we had the 2021 halloween challenge and we had several completers people who completed the well, quest and challenge. they were intense competitors may i add <laughs> they were they were they were and the crypt keeper was kind of a 
trifecta, you know, finishing the quest first, finishing the 31 day horror challenge first, and then being the quantity winner as well. And so he, he got a nice gift box in the mail (laughs) for me. I just sent it out a little bit ago, probably by the time this airs, he will have already gotten it. And then there were several other people who completed blue stocking and then pepper flake and ice five. They all completed. And there were several other people who participated, but didn't necessarily get to the finish line, which we appreciate everyone who participates because that just makes it more interesting. And I'll tell you, you know, special nominations to people like Blue who gave a little few sentence review to every movie that she watched. And that was really helpful for me. Absolutely. And 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 it helps us get to know them a little bit more too. For sure. It gets me, it helps me to get to know what they like, what movies they like. So it helps me program in the Discord too. Blue and I agreed on a number of things. However, the one that I I thought was the best was... um, the scariest horror theme is tubular bells, the exorcist. It's the most simple and it's terrifying. Right, right, right. Yes. One of the quests we had, and and by the way, I'm going to do a whole other challenge starting Thanksgiving and going through the new year. We're going to do a whole nother one. And I've come up with new categories and prizes and all kinds of things, different ways to do the challenges. I just, it's fun. It gets everybody engaged and it's a fun way for us to all interact mm-hmm. and, and you win things. So who doesn't want that? You win, you, you things. win things. So it's great. But it's it's cool because one of the quests was I came up with like 12 categories of things you actually had to do, like go take a picture of yourself with a pumpkin or whatever, stuff mm-hmm. like that. And one of them is what you're talking about, like your favorite horror movie score, I think is the question. Oh, and yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. The Exorcist, man. It hits all the bells. I mean, Halloween, <laughs> obviously, you know, John Carpenter, Halloween classic. is classic, but there's there's something so terrifying about and so simple and and even like paradoxical to the theme, right? Yeah. That makes it terrifying. Yeah, there's something about it that's eternal to me, whereas the Halloween, you know, that's you Friday know, whatever the 13th. That is, Friday the 13th, that Friday the 13th, and then also Halloween, like those... Those sounds, I guess, maybe because I've heard them so much. It's just been oversaturated. So it doesn't scare me anymore. It doesn't really scare me. I mean, when I watch the original Halloween movie, that to me, that is still unsettling. Yeah. At least for the first hour while you're waiting. Yeah. (laughs) But The Exorcist, mm, unsettling. Completely, like all the way unsettling. I think you had an article that you were going to share. We talked about this on the show before, but I always like to bring it up when research, we know with research, the more there is, the more that we can make it generalizable, right? And meaning that the more people put work into certain studies, if we continue to get the same results, we can more likely say, oh, this is actually a correlation. We can actually say that horror films help with anxiety or are correlated to lowering anxiety. So I found an article called How Horror Movies Can Help Mental Health According to Science, and it's through CNET Wellness. So if you go to CNET.com and you type in that article, How Horror Movies Can Help Mental Health According to Science, it says, from zombies to beyond, horror movies can have surprising benefits for anxiety and stress, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm someone who has, you know, suffered from anxiety on and off throughout my life. And so I thought this, some of this was really interesting because one of the things that we know about anxiety is those of us who are prone to have it more chronically or panic attacks more chronically is that our, our body sets off a false alarm 
And so our fear response is, <laughs> it, our gauge is off, right? So for, for people who don't have it to such an extent, because it's on a continuum, we all, if you have a palsy of anxiety, then, you know, at times it, it just goes off when it's not supposed to go off. So we know that horror movies don't feel all that relaxing. Uh, some people are really don't find them to be helpful at all. In fact, I was having this conversation with my friend's mom the other day and I was telling her about some of this research and she goes, and she hates horror films. And she's like, I just don't get that at all. And I was like, well, I understand it's not for everybody, but if let's start with this. So the fear response is the system that our ancestors' bodies evolved to survive threats. So it's very primal, right? So we need to know if, if there's if we're a caveman and there's dinosaur coming at us, we need to know to respond to that. Okay. So our bodies flooded with stress hormones such as cortisol, which is the main one, and adrenaline. And then our heart rate and our blood pressure, all of that tells us stuff when we start to get anxious. Our breathing starts to increase and that helps us react very quickly. So when the threat is gone, the fear response is followed by the rest and digest response, which prompts your body to calm down and return to baseline state. That's why many of us who have panic attacks, after a panic attack, you'll notice you get really exhausted. And some people will just, uh, there are times I've actually just gone and taken a nap if, For it's, sure. if it's been a bad one. So, because the body really does just go into that rest mode. So for some viewers who have anxiety or trauma, horror movies only make matters worse. But for others, including myself, horror can actually help provide relief from pent up tension. So there's a way to practice feeling scared in a safe environment, refocus your brain away from real life anxieties and enjoy the release that comes after the movie's over. So I'm just gonna briefly talk about three elements of this article. One talks about making friends with fear. So fear uh, a lot of times is what we're actually terrified of. We don't even really know what the fear is or when we break it down, if you're working from like a cognitive behavioral place, once you break it down, you realize there isn't really much there to be afraid of. So the fear itself a lot of times is what paralyzes people and stops people from doing things. So viewers can immerse themselves in a harrowing narrative, yet at the same time be perfectly safe able to control the stimulus by turning it off or shifting attention to the surrounding space. So we, in some ways, have control over our fear when sure. we're watching horror. Yes. Uh, the next would be an escape from real life. So, you know, if someone's feeling anxious, they may find that horror helps them stop ruminating about other things in their life. And horror forces the viewer to focus to the monster on the screen or whatever. So in some ways, it's its uh, its own form of mindfulness, yeah, really. Absolutely. And then the last one I'll talk about is headfirst into your worst fear. So sometimes rather than a way to escape real life worries, horror can be a way to dive headfirst into them, almost like a form of exposure therapy. So sometimes when I'll, I'm working with clients, if it's appropriate, and they're, they're talking about something they might be avoiding, I'll ask them to lean into that rather than run away from it. Because if we learn to lean into it, when it's appropriate, it's not always appropriate, um, <laughs> then, you know, and we have like a curiosity about it. In horror, we call it, a morbid curiosity, which can be defined as an interest in learning about threatening situations. So there's more and more in this article that's really fascinating, but I thought that this was um, for horror viewers and those of you that may suffer from generalized anxiety or panic attacks. I just thought this was really cool because people like to talk a lot of shit about horror. 
Oh my God. I mean, that's why we started. Well, one of the many reasons why we started this, we started this because we wanted to sit down and talk about horror movies on a regular basis. And then we just decided kind of in that first season, we kind of decided what our real motivations were. And it was certainly to take away the stigma of horror and liking horror and in horror as very intelligent. Now, since then, we've had people like Mike Flanagan, et cetera, explode, you know, with very smart horror series and and all kinds of, you know, and, and Jordan Peele and everybody making very smart horror films, right? But that wasn't always right. how, I mean, if you look at the early two th- you know, 2000s, if you look at the aughts and the movies, the horror movies that were being made, it's very easy to see how yeah. we got to a place of not being respected or what have That's you. That's right. As horror files. Or, or looked at as like a bad influence. Right, yeah. right, right. Mm-hmm. So... There you go. Thank you so much. That's yeah. awesome. I had a couple of pieces of horror news I just wanted to chat with you about cool. in case you knew or didn't know. I know you know this one, but let's let's talk about it a little bit or let the listeners know that I know you have recently read the Final Girl Support Group mm-hmm. a book by Grady Hendrix. And one of the things that you were saying about that is that you enjoyed it, but that you really felt like it would be better, uh, the media distribution would be better in film or television. And sure enough, HBO Max is getting together with Charlize Theron and Andy and Barbara Muschietti. I don't know how that's pronounced. They're probably the producers or directors, not sure. And they're going to make a series for of the final girls. Ask group. and you shall receive. There it is. I That's was joking. crazy. I was just saying this. I was just I was just joking with Kathy the other day. I'm like, well, call him up and tell him you're welcome. That's my thought process. I no, mean, I'm sure. It, but he, Grady, Grady writes to make movies. Well, and, and you had even said stuff. you had said because this is his most recent book. You had even said. He might be getting to that place where he now knows he could be getting these offers because yes, and I really hope I'm I'm because his stuff is very cinematic already. Yeah, I'm about thirty percent into the gosh Southern Southern Book Club, and that one I could also see as a movie. Oh yeah, I mean uh, I think all of them yeah. work for that. I, he's yeah. he's a very it's formulaic in the sense that a formula that works for storytelling, yeah. and that's what. TV and film people are always looking for is something that follows that sort of very entertaining formula. And that's why his books are successful there. So good. they follow that formula. They're really great. So that's going to happen. I'm, I'm excited for that. I'm just kind of scrolling to see if it says sort of when maybe, uh, no. Okay. So they're just in development as far as I know. And then the other thing I was going to talk about was Bruce Campbell's new movie. Yes. Bruce Campbell has a new movie. It's called Black Friday. And it's funny. Some of the press stuff, there's pictures of him and he looks like a grandpa and he's like grandpa sweater. It's pretty cute. Oh, that's funny. (laughs) Because when you see him, if you guys ever see him for Q&As and stuff that he puts on for himself and for his Evil Dead movies and stuff where he he does like live commentary. I've been to several of those events online. He looks very Rico Suave. Like Mm -hmm. suit is on point, hair, makeup. The rings on his fingers, everything oh, does on, look like a grandpa. Everything's on point. Uh, and this is definitely him, oh, you know, funny. acting in a different character. So Black Friday takes place inside a large Toys R Us style big box retail store where the ravening hordes of shoppers waiting outside the doors for midnight deals are seemingly infected by some sort of alien parasite becoming deadly monsters in the process. This sounds like he took, I mean, 
maybe not because it's it's a general concept but there is a there's a video game that's very very similar to this oh i'm sure yeah um and that's pretty exciting because when i've played the game i've always thought this would be a really cool movie so and he's perfect for that yeah so it says of course in terms of inspirations it's 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 kind of looks a little bit something like Evil Dead. It looks like fr- the alien zombies from Night of the Creeps, something like that. So we'll see. I'm excited for that. That's coming out. That's in theaters, limit release, limited release, November 19th, and then video on demand as of November 23rd. Cool. So check that out. There was one other thing I was, oh, there's a couple other things actually. And in Evil Dead news, uh, you guys probably already know this, this sort of was circulating at the end of October, but Evil Dead Rise, which filming wrapped on the return of the Evil Dead franchise, and it's called Evil Dead Rise Director Lee Cronin's, uh, that's the person who did the hole in the ground, Evil Dead Rise. So it's the brand new installment of the Evil Dead franchise. It's going directly to HBO Max, ladies and gentlemen. All right. Very exciting. I'm excited by that. I liked the last, the reincarnation of the Evil Dead franchise, the newest movie. It was actually very good as far as, um, not remakes, but reboots. One of the better reboots that I've seen in, I don't know, a while, Mm -hmm. a long while. And then I also wanted to mention that Key and Peele are doing a new stop motion comedy horror movie from the Nightmare Before Christmas director. So Henry Selleck, the director of the Nightmare Before Christmas and Coraline is back next year with a brand new stop motion movie called Wendell and Wild, Mm. officially teased by Netflix. So Key and Peele, meaning Jordan Peele and Keegan Michael K. I love, I love, I love him. Star in a tale of the hellishly funny demons of a teen named Cat. That could be a really nice mix. Key and Peele with Henry Selleck. Coraline and the Nightmare Before Christmas are two of my favorite Halloween movies. Yeah, they're great. So (laughs) I'm really looking forward to that. Cool. Well, what we're going to do next is a little segment that we like to call... Mm, she's all subtle and dreamy today yeah (laughs) fair enough hit me with your facts ready yes number one (laughs) yeah the japanese giant hornet has venom so powerful it's said to do what to a human got it number two when a person dies, what is the last sense to go? Oh, interesting. Hmm. It's all your sense. That's assuming you had sense to begin with. That's true. Okay. Number three. The man who wrote Michael Jackson's thriller originally wanted this horror icon slash starlet to record the spoken word segment that was ultimately delivered by Vincent Price. Oh, interesting. Okay. Number four. What is Cotard's syndrome? Mm-hmm. No idea. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> and number five. What percentage of people dream entirely in black and white? Oh, interesting. Huh. Hmm. All right. I made some notes. Cool. 
You get all of them right. <laughs> you win. End of the show. I don't da, know if you da, remember da, da. we were on, uh, this was <laughs> like a week or two. I, I'd said something in our Discord chat about, I just found a really weird horror facts with Kath. Pepper had responded. She's like, oh, I'm excited. She said something like that. Catard syndrome. Oh, that was the one. Okay. Yeah. Wait till you hear what it is. <laughs> I can't I've wait. I've never heard of this before. <laughs> You're like, nope, don't know. How was your Halloween weekend, by the way? It was nice. I mean, speaking of like COVID kind of going away, at least the in a, in a sure. you know, pandemic way, it was nice to actually be out. The party was still outside um, in a friend's very large backyard. Nice. Uh, he had a, he, in his, backyard he has a huge built-in bar and almost looks like a barn it's massive and so you can go inside of it um you can go inside yeah so it's like it's open almost like if you were to go into like um out here it would be like uh saddle ranch or something like that and then he had a pool with the grotto and two different uh fire pits with like these skulls in the fire pits that um it was my friend's partner and she was saying that when she was putting it in when she was setting everything up like even the jaws on the skulls moved and she's like i picked one up and the jaw fell straight up she's like john what do i do with these so um it was fun there were there were a lot of people there they had um he had uh, his housekeeper had done like all the cooking and they had friends help and so um so many great costumes. He went as um, Dr. Facilier. Oh, and then, nice. Uh, my friend went as, um, uh, what's her face from 101 Dalmatians? Um, oh, Cruella? Cruella. Mm-hmm. She had a cool dress. Uh, I went as as Alex from uh, Clockwork Orange, which was really fun. That was a fun costume. It, you know, it's such, it's a, it's a, um, a generational piece. Not that I was an adult when that came out, but I, you know, growing up in the eighties, that was a, a big book and film. And I, I got into Absolutely. the, I got into the Uber that night and the guy driving, he was probably around my age. He was like, that's so cool. You know, and I showed it, people were like, and then, um, you know, super my, great that they knew who it was. I know my friend, my friend's partner was even like, that was cool. Like I haven't seen that in so long. He's like, it made me want to go back. So I, I just thought it was a pretty common costume, but a lot of people were like, that's really cool. Cause I think he's one of those really memorable characters that sometimes we forget about and people don't really use him as a costume anymore, but he, it's a fun costume. Yeah. No, I almost watched a clockwork orange actually this Halloween season. Did I'll you? probably do it in the, the winter. book is fantastic too. If, yep. if people haven't read the book, I really recommend it. Perfect. So um, th- like yeah, it, it was fun. We had a, we had a lot of, um, a lot of really cool costumes to see there and, and the weather was perfect. So it was nice. It, um, it was nice to have a Halloween. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. We had to skip a year. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Awesome. When we come back, we're going to talk about monsters inside the 24 faces of Billy Milligan. We'll be right back. <laughs> I don't know. I was just feeling the wolves today. Well, it's cold out. It it's appropriate. Yeah. We had a fog warning today. It, it was foggy in the mornings. I usually let out um, my cat for a couple hours so mm-hmm. she can kind of mess around. And I looked outside and I went, "Yeah, no, you're not going out today because <laughs> this is the weather where those little howlers will come get you." 
That's right. (laughs) Okay. Well, on that note, let's talk a little bit about Monsters Inside the 24 Faces of Billy Milligan. So by way of introduction, there's a, the reason that this came into our kind of zeitgeist right now and and us talking about is that there's a 2021 docuseries about Billy Milligan that was released on Netflix on September 22nd, and we just made our way to it. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with this, it's four episodes. It's your usual Netflix doc, what they are doing with docs now, right? It's four episodes. They're always four episodes. Mm-hmm. And it's highly produced, highly visually interesting. They put them in all kinds of interesting sets and all of that. So for those of you who haven't seen it yet, it's one of those. Billy Milligan was arrested in 1977 for a series of robberies, kidnappings, and the rapes of three women on the Ohio State University campus. Despite the evidence suggesting he had committed those crimes, Milligan had no memories of the assaults, appearing to exhibit continually changing personality traits. This resulted in a team of psychiatrists, as we will discuss, diagnosing him as having dissociative identity disorder, which at that time was multiple personality disorder. His lawyers pleaded insanity, claiming two of his initial 10 personalities committed the crimes without Milligan's knowledge. Milligan was acquitted, but spent the next decade in mental hospitals where he was diagnosed with an additional 14 personalities. He was (laughs) released in 1988 and then discharged from the Ohio mental health system and Ohio courts in 1991. And then basically went into obscurity and was not did not resurface until he died of cancer at the age of 59 years old. So that's the broad broad brush of Can, what's happening there. I just want to make a comment here. You might because I want you to make several. And I'm this is this we're not even getting to Billy yet, but more of his assessors. Yeah. Even if someone has dissociative identity disorder, and we'll talk about maybe some of the controversy around that. 24 personalities is not typically what we see. We see a handful. We might see three or four Mm -hmm. because as you and I know, it's split parts of the self, Mm -hmm. not 24, but maybe four, maybe five, usually three or four. So that was my first like, okay. (laughs) Right. I mean, what? so, okay. So let me just say this one thing before we really dive into this, because I can tell we're eager to do so. It's broken up into four episodes. We're going to go through it episode by episode. We'll probably get derailed every now and then and go off on tangents as we do. It pretty much starts out as introducing you to the first episode's called The Campus Rapist. So it introduces you to the crimes that ultimately got him into the system. But it also goes headlong in, I would say, for the, both the first and the second episode into all of these quote-unquote experts. And you know what's interesting about that for us is that Kathy is one of those, not on necessarily on uh, DID, but she is one of those experts that has to assess people and then go to courtrooms and do all that. So I was just, I'm very, very interested in your reactions to yeah, a bunch I worked, of these I worked people. with uh, NGI, not people found not guilty by reason of insanity was a, a major right. part of my work for a while. Yeah. So I'm, I, when I was watching this, I mean, honestly, one of the reasons why I picked it mm-hmm. <laughs> is because I thought, well, this will be really interesting to see if there's a lot of, you know, meal we can make out of what, and my God, those first couple of oh. episodes, it's all experts and psychiatrists and psychologists and people assessing him. So should be interesting. 
All right. So episode one, I will sort of hand it to you a little okay. bit. Okay. Um, this In this specific episode, we're dealing more with uh, the legalities, right? So we find out that he has, you know, raped how many people at this point, Shannon? Like well, three or four? Convicted him of three, yeah. Three, yeah. And, and so um, the first thing that we will do when someone has uh, a questionable, you know, mental illness or, or questionable mental stability, maybe is a better way to put it, is we might assess that person for competency. What competency means in a legal, in a psycho-legal setting is that somebody actually has the mental ability to stand trial. Now, what does that mean? A person is mentally competent to stand trial if they're able to understand the character and consequences of the proceedings against him or her or them and properly and properly assist their attorney. So more simplistically, they have to understand the charges against them, how to perform in court, what their role is, what it is that they've actually been charged of, and then can they properly assist their attorney in how they want to go about the case. So if any of you out there have been to court for a variety of reasons, or your attorneys yourselves, you may already know this, um, your client, or if you are the client, plays an active role in putting together the here as far as you know the uh, how the attorney uh, sort of attacks uh, their position in court, right? So the attorney will oftentimes ask the client questions, you know. So that's the first step, and what they do is they'll go through what's called a, a competency evaluation, where they have a forensic psychologist evaluator go through, and there's there's very structured and standardized assessments that we will utilize to then determine if somebody is competent. If they are found incompetent or not competent to stand trial, they will then go to a forensic hospital for a period of time usually put on medication to stabilize because it's usually a result of psychosis or some sort of illness where they're unable to be present. Um, and they'll then stabilize. They'll, the hope is for them to regain that competency, which just means, again, bringing them into mental stability so they can do these two things. They don't have to be cured or fixed. We don't look at mental illness like that anyway. They just have to be able to fit these two prongs, which usually takes, I mean, average about six months. Some people it can take longer, but usually we're looking at six months to a year for somebody to regain that competency to then some people never gain it. So mm -hmm. that's the first step. In this uh, episode, they also talk about the fact that the attorney wanted to utilize the insanity defense. So depending on what state you're in, it can, in, in California, it's NGI in other states, it's called NGRI. It's all the same thing, not guilty by reason of insanity. What that means is um, in the past, it's also been known as the mental disorder defense uh, is an affirmative defense by excuse in a criminal case, arguing that the defendant is not responsible for their actions due, in, due, in, due to an episodic or persistent psychiatric disease at the time of the criminal act. So 
What this means is not that you just have a mental illness and therefore you get NGI. Less than 1% of the population actually will get NGI. People, I think there's a lot of pop psychology out there that they, people think that NGI is an excuse and people go into court and they're just handed out like candy. Not true at all. It's very hard to get. And it's always not the easier way out. Billy Milligan was the first person in the United States to utilize the NGI defense in trial. So he was um, before uh, John Hinckley, who shot Lincoln, I mean, excuse me, Lincoln. <laughs> that would be Booth. Uh, John Hinckley, uh, cool. <laughs> who shot Reagan in the 80s and blamed it on Jodie Foster. Yeah. Um, he was not insane, but he ended up getting the insanity defense. And after that, they figured that it was being utilized too much and pe- it was too easy for people to get. And that's when they really started to crack down on it. Mm. But M- Billy Milligan did... Um, he was the first, as far as I know, to utilize it in the United States court system. And the tricky part of the insanity defense and why I think people um, misunderstand it is that insanity is not a clinical term. It's a legal term. And they have to be able to prove that when the crime happens, not two minutes before, not two seconds before, not a second after, at the exact time that that person was either unable to understand what they had committed, what they had done, or they have did not understand that what they did was harmful. And we call in, in California and in most states now, we go by the Monoton rule. There's the Monoton and the Durham rule. The Monoton rule is what we use here in California and most states. So if at the time of the alleged, crim, alleged criminal act, the defendant was so deranged that she did not know or he did not know or they did not know the nature or quality of their actions, or if they knew the nature and quality, they did not know what they had actually done. So that is, it is very, very specific. And so what happens is when someone gets NGI, they're found not guilty by reason of insanity. And instead of going to prison, they go to a hospital. The problem though, is that when you go to prison, you actually get a sentence. That could be life, but you get a sentence. When you go to a hospital, that could be indefinite. So when people say, oh, the NGI, they got off easy. I mean, maybe they get a more cush setting, but they may be there for the rest of their life because they can be indefinitely civilly committed. So I just wanted to give a little bit of background to the context of this case because there were some comments made about how, you know, he had used this defense as an excuse and all that, but it's not always the best outcome to get NGI. Well, and like what you, what I think was really important about that, and and I was certainly one of these people because I'm just a regular person that if if I didn't know this is how I would feel is when you watch stuff like this or when you see trials or you're, I mean, even as simple as watching something as you know literal as like Law and Order or something, you're watching and, yeah. and they even portray it as if you know everybody gets very incensed when the person gets that, you know, when, when they don't have to go to regular quote unquote prison. Prison, Yeah. So our media really characterizes it as an easy way out, an easy way out or something Mm -hmm. to avoid. But I think it's possible that some of our, at least in America, I can only speak for America, but it's possible that some of our society is becoming more alert to the fact 
that having a mental illness and then having that deemed in our media is actually being explicated in very negative ways sometimes, Mm -hmm. meaning being committed is, is, it's really, even in the horror genre, right? American Horror Story, Mm -hmm. different, different pieces of the horror that's a trope now is the whole psychiatric mental hospital mental institution i think we're becoming we're beginning to realize that it's not a plus and also that uh, speaking for for myself as someone who actually used to have hold privileges and i would actually write actually 5585s for kids which is the same as 5150s for adults and I would commit them. I was only committing them for, you know, the 72-hour hold. But then once you get to the hospital, then it's up to the hospital to decide whether or not they want to elongate that to a two-week right. hold and then to a month hold and all of that. So I, wa- I am and was a part of that system in saving lives because, you know, putting someone on a hold has very specific criteria and you're, you, are, you are charged with the idea that it's only appropriate if you are if they're in imminent danger and you are saving their lives. And so there's a lot of moving parts to this. There's just a lot of little pieces to the puzzle. And I think it's a fantastic way to have a discussion around how being civilly or criminally committed, you're giving up, you you lose your rights, not giving up. You're losing, you lose your rights. Your autonomy, your rights. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And this was a time that I think, I mean, I do think because they hadn't really solidified how it was used because it was actually English common law. It started in Europe. So when they used it here, he being one of the first cases, if not the first case is my understanding. If somebody writes in and corrects me, I'm open to that. It's just um, that it probably was overused at this time. They can't overuse it anymore. Right. Right. But, um, and John Hinckley's case stopped that. But uh, back at this time, there was a lot of, there was a lot of, uh, you know, oh, this is going to be an easy way out for this guy. And who has 24 personality? I think at this time it was like 10 before he went to the hospital. But Shannon, do you want to talk a little bit about dissociative identity disorder? You know, it's not one of my specialties, honestly, but we can talk about it a little bit in general. I mean, it used to be called, obviously, multiple personality disorder, and that's where we got it. And I know that, you know, we were talking about about it right before we started recording and how really in our community, meaning the mental health community, at least when I was reared, and that's the last 10, 15 years, it's always been discussed as a fictional diagnosis. Yeah. However... It's in the DSM. Right. Meaning, you know, and for those of you who don't know, we're on the DSM-5, the Diagnostical, Diagnostic Statistical Manual, which is what psychiatrists use to diagnose. And by proxy, we all have to use it to diagnose. It's based on a medical model. We just came out with the DSM-5 in the last couple of years, and it takes forever for them because they, they really go by the research. So it's biased in that way, too. Mm-hmm. It's gone. It's it's. It's black and white cognitive research, you know, and it's vetted in order to to decide what these diagnoses are. So to me, it's like, well, it's in the DSM-5. There's obviously a lot of research. Yeah. And, the, and although it's not my specialty, there's a lot of research. They've decided to keep it in. So it's not a fiction. Right. And that's what's interesting, I think, in mental health about that is that we all still sort of think it's a fiction. There's... There's controversial diagnoses in, here's the tricky thing too about our field is because it isn't a hard science like medicine, Right. a lot of it is based on theory. 
Mm -hmm. right? So you're going to have X amount of people on the board of psychology who go, we want it in. Yes. And X amount going, this is horseshit. Same thing happened with homosexuality when it was removed from the DSM. It wasn't removed because there was a general consensus that people who were, who identified as lesbian, gay, or bisexual at that time didn't have a mental illness is that they were so done talking about it. They said, we don't want to talk, just remove it. Yeah. But there was a, I mean, and even today to this day, there's still controversy. Yeah. There's still people to this day that believe that there's a mental illness component to it, or you must've been molested or, I mean that, so when we see ill, when we see mental disorders in the DSM, it's important for people to know that there are communities of people that believe certain diagnoses should and should not be in there, but they get in there because of who is on the board at that time. Yeah, they were, there was a lot of controversy with the DSM-5. There are whole books written about sort of the controversy that was happening and why it took so long for the DSM-5 to come yeah. out and all of the different things that they changed. Right. They changed the whole access, you know, they changed the way, yep. they changed a lot, let's put it that way. But so I can break down just really quickly before we get to episode two i guess maybe we talked yeah, about yeah. the episode. yeah okay. we're kind of between two and we're three kind of, mm-hmm. this is what i mean we're just going <laughs> to kind of go off in our specialties and because oh, let me before i do this so one of the things i'm going to do is i'm just going to uh share with you guys the criteria for did and that is how we commonly refer to dissociative identity disorder okay so the criteria for dissociative identity disorder The first one is two or more distinct identities or personality states are present, each with its own relatively enduring pattern of perceiving, relating to, and thinking about the environment and self. I'm glitching up because I'm thinking, according to who? (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's like, according to the person telling you the symptom. And so that's where I think where sometimes we run into because there's a part in this documentary where he even says they were trusting that Billy where they were trusting what Billy was saying. They were trusting that Billy was telling them the truth and the dice. One of the psychiatrists in one of the episodes said, you know, the trouble with that is that you are talking to a mentally ill person. Right. I believe there's a lot of nuance to assessment of this diagnosis. And that's why I I honestly believe it should only be done by experts of this diagnosis. And that's what I tell, you know, when, when kids come in and say they've been diagnosed with DID, because I've had that a few times in the last few months, even I say to the parents who diagnosed them, just like with ADD. And I'll (laughs) tell you something interesting. It's often the, freaking hospital social worker or psychiatrist Mm -hmm. and i say to the parents you know lovingly and respectfully (laughs) i totally understand that this is what it seems like it is i'm not saying that's not what it is i don't know your child but honestly i don't know your child and neither does that hospital worker that saw your child for for five minutes for five minutes but also maybe for three days yeah three, five days while they were in the hospital, even if they were in the hospital two weeks, knew them for a very brief amount of time. It's, I just want to caution you, perhaps if you have the ability to get assessed by someone who has a distinct uh, niche in this, a specialty in this, please do that. 
<laughs> That's right. And I think, I mean, we see this with certain uh, diagnoses that are overdiagnosed too. When kids come in that have been diagnosed with ADHD, I ask them who diagnosed it. My pediatrician. <laughs> yeah. So that's another one. That's another one. <laughs> yeah. And I also get, and see here we are on a tangent, but this is the thing that we really like to talk about, obviously. But here, but here's the thing. I also get bipolar being diagnosed in children. And guess what? Like the community doesn't like to do that. But there are specialties in this. In our community, there's a whole program at UCLA that's run by a very competent individual who's written many books and has done a lot of work. And it's his specialty mm -hmm. of working with teenagers that have bipolar. And so, oh, you know, the hospital didn't want to diagnose him, him with bipolar and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, they'll diagnose him with DID or ADHD, but they won't diagnose yeah, him with bipolar, but they're medicating him for bipolar. Yeah. And that's how I know. I'm like, oh, are these medications helping? Yes. Right. Because like <laughs> they talk about in, I'm going to, I'm going to jump, we'll come back. But in episode three, they talk about the medicate, they're medicating him for schizophrenia. Yeah. Understood. Right. So we know that, uh, the mechanisms of action, meaning how a drug works in a body and uh, a brain of someone with schizophrenia is we're dealing with an entirely different system. Dissociation is not necessarily, is not hallucinations, no. right? So they were even medicating him yeah. for schizophrenia. Because they didn't know how, uh, there. there's no medication for DID. There is not. <laughs> so they don't know how to, it's It's the same as uh, a lot of people who have, who have been diagnosed with bipolar aren't actually bipolar. They actually have borderline personality disorder, but there's no medication for borderline personality. And that's where the medical community, the psychiatry community, and the mental health community get into a rough spot because the DSM is based on the medical model mm -hmm. and it's based to diagnose to then treat and one of those primary treatments is medication That's and if right. they don't know how to medicate you they have a very difficult time diagnosing you with that so if they can't medicate you for a personality disorder they don't really want to give it to you and that's why one of the many reasons why our community doesn't want to diagnose personality disorders there's no drugs nope there's no drugs for it so uh, let me just make sure i get through the criteria sure <clears throat> so that we're not completely off the rails <laughs> the second uh dissociative identity disorder criterion is is amnesia must occur, defined as gaps in the recall of everyday events, important personal information, and or traumatic event. Number three is the person must be distressed by the disorder, meaning your functioning is lower, have trouble functioning in one or more major areas. So this would be, you know, home, work, school, relationships, stuff like that. Uh, daily activities, daily life skills. This criterion is common among all serious mental illness diagnosis as as a diagnosis is not appropriate where the symptoms do not create distress. I don't know if people understand that. Like, oh, I'm depressed. It's like, well, okay, let's not use that word yet. Like, look at your whole picture. Are you still going to work? Are you still functioning in your relationships? Are you still a good mom? All of that stuff. It's like, you're suffering from some symptoms of depression. Right. We're not going to diagnose you with major depressive disorder yeah. because because you seem to be functioning fine. But I just want to. There, there's a sorry, not digress yeah. too much, no, but no. there's a funny uh, part of Ellen's stand up from years ago when she's when she's talking about anxiety and she's like going through like the commercial talks about all the different symptoms. She's like, yes, I have anxiety. I have a pulse. <laughs> Meaning like we no, all no, for sure we all have elements of depression and anxiety situationally. Yeah, right? it's yeah. the buzzword, right? Mm -hmm. Number four is the disturbance is not part of normal cultural or religious practices. For example, I have absolutely assessed recently a young person who talks to the dead 
according mm-hmm. to her, and also has hallucinations, according to her. And they're very different. Piecing that out as a cultural norm for her, mm-hmm. that in her culture, it's actually quite common to speak to those who've passed on. Mm-hmm. Delineating that is a really interesting thing, but that's kind of one example of what they're talking about. And then number five is the symptoms aren't due to direct physiological effects of a substance, meaning, um, you know, he's not high on crack or something or a general medical condition. Obviously it can be um, part of complex partial seizures. You got to rule those out. Okay. Moving sort of into episode two and and three here, Mm -hmm. you know, there was, they were, having back and forth on this documentary discussions about, you know, uh, using mental illness as a responsibility for the crime and that being a cop-out. I I don't, even if we take Billy Milligan's, you know, potential for bullshit in this and remove that for a second, just talk about this generally, the insanity defense is not an excuse. It's just an explanation. It helps navigate where does this, where is this person going to be most appropriately placed? But it doesn't, it doesn't even the sister said, I don't make an excuse for what he did. And I don't think that um, I don't think the intention of the not guilty by reason of insanity or even using mental illness as as an explanation. I don't think it, it anyone ever insinuates that it excuses the behavior. Mm-mm. And there were a couple of different people interviewed for this that really pressed that. And I would just it was very like react. I reacted to that because working in this and knowing the people who ended up in conditional release programs and the difficult lives they led after being found NGI, uh, this was no walk in the park for them. And, and when they did come to, they live with that reality forever Mm -hmm. that they did those things. Of course. Yeah. What did you think of all of the, (laughs) the 45,000 experts that were involved with this? This case was a mess. I know. They had too many cooks. I mean, that's what I thought, but I'm a layman when it comes to that. Too many cooks in the kitchen. The court's going to want to have like two or three on the defense, two or three on the prosecution. And then they're going to look at what those opinions are. Like if you look at the Chauvin case, right? They had like X amount of experts on one side, X amount of, I think it was like three and three or something. Mm -hmm. That's technically, this was such a mess that it's almost like when you have too many writers on a screenplay, (laughs) you end up with a, a, a disastrous story. This was so disjointed that I don't think they really accurately, we don't really know because it was such a mess. Well, and I think that's congruent with what most of us out in the world feel about most court cases is that they get so convoluted that it's hard to see the forest for the trees. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And so I agree with you. And I know you and I were talking about this before it, we came on to record that the, the trial, the way that they were assessed, um, it, it was just, um, it, it was really, I don't know if negligence the right word, but it it wasn't it wasn't good. No, it wasn't good. I know that they also talk about the power of of suggestion through hypnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's kind of where he got he got more and more alters right. as they went, because that's the part where it was like they realized the the experts remembered that they realized that when they 
asked him about it, there like more, more would come. Yeah. And yeah. they're like, so we stopped doing that. Yeah. I mean, literally he, I think he started with 10 and then he it would just, just continue to, and he would make them up and, and, and he was very convincing to them. And I, and I do think that there, some of these uh, quote unquote experts were older white women who really just wanted to nurture and care for and fix his trauma. That's how it came out. Yeah. That, I mean, it that's came what it looked that like. way. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Because they, the sister does talk about the fact that they did grow up with a lot of abuse and we know that trauma can split personalities, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's one of the things that everyone, again, not an expert in this, so I don't know the research, but it's one of those common beliefs in our mental health community is that profound sexual, physical, and emotional trauma is one of the sparks that lights that fire mm-hmm. for this, for most things, for psychopathy, for sociopathy, mm-hmm. and for this. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and she was saying that the, the child abuse that it bordered on torture um, and I, I don't, can't remember if they went into the different types of abuse, if it was sexual and physical, but, um, I, I do believe that he was abused. I just don't know if he had 24 personalities. Me neither. Yeah. <laughs> you know, do you feel like he was assessed, uh, correctly and put into mental hospitals in a correct way? And, and I'm not saying for you to levy your, uh, um, yeah. expert opinion because you have not assessed no. him. I'm just saying based on this. Uh, very long, very drawn out, slightly boring documentary, which is what Netflix is putting out now, these four part true crime documentaries that there's just like they could do it in two parts. So here here are a couple of, of thoughts that I have that will hopefully directly answer your question. Here's a guy that they assess who they believe to have, you know, upwards of 24 personalities he, regardless of whether he committed his crimes as an insane through a, a during insanity, or he was well aware, we know that if we're doing a risk assessment on this guy, it's pretty damn high yes. because we know that in order to lower risk of somebody who is psychotic, which he wasn't, he was dissociative. We have to get them on medication, which is the conversation we just had. Mm-hmm. So we can't technically lower this guy's risk because we can't medicate him. So we decide to put him in a minimum security. <laughs> so mm. first bad choice yeah. is they don't, they, they, where I have an issue with the clinicians in this <laughs> is that they were so overly nurturing that they continuously gave this guy the benefit of the doubt. So whether he was legally insane or a complete fucking psychopath yeah you don't put someone in a minimum security you make sure they cannot get out so he would he just like reintegrated himself into the community so i did i have worked with someone who slipped through the cracks and should not have gotten ngi um a female actually who who um i'm sorry if there's trigger warning here so you might want to blurp it for like 10 five seconds who murdered her two children, okay? And got NGI. And I worked with her for a couple of years. She was not NGI, okay? So if we don't, we're never gonna know 100%. And, that, and, and we can't be perfect, and, but we don't put someone in a minimum security. So that was the, the first big error. They botched the trial. They had too many people it, trying to investigate and figure out what was going on. It became a very political because he was one of the first, it became a very political case who he eventually becomes a celebrity. 
And now we move into even more dangerous territory by putting this man in a notorious, giving him notoriety for doing what, imagine the family of these victims. I do. It's awful. Terrible. It's, it's awful how they botched it. I don't know that we, okay, so I would say watch this documentary if you don't know anything about this case, then it's interesting. Watch this documentary if you'd like to see a little bit more about assessment in the courts. But overall, if you watch these all the time, like a lot of our listeners do, if you're a true crime nerd and you watch all these documentaries, I would say it's a standard Netflix needed an edit could have been done in two episodes kind of netflix documentary there's lots of long shots with musical cues and beautiful sets where the same experts say the same things over and over and over again yes they do and i'll just leave it with this clinical judgment is only as good as a flip of a coin so everything that they said just by interviewing him, because that's all they did. I don't think they gave any st- like structured assessments. At least they didn't talk about they it. They didn't talk about it. That it's really just an opinion. Yeah. Just like when I assess a kid, it's my opinion whether or not that kid fits the program I'm assessing it for. That's right. And it's also whether or not that kid fits the diagnosis I'm going to give them. That's right. And whether or not the treatment plan fits the things that I know about that kid. But as I say all the time, I'm the first person to say, I've known your kid for like an hour. So this is just to gateway. These are the gateway things that all of us as mental health professionals have to do. In order to get paid from an insurance company, you have to diagnose a person. Mm-hmm. They have to have a diet. I don't know if you guys know that, but they have to have a diagnosis for anyone to get paid. So if you're going to a clinician that uses insurance, they've diagnosed you. And even if you don't, cause I don't, you're, these people want super bills for their insurance. You need to have a diagnosis. They have diagnosed you. And I cannot tell you, it's probably 90% of the population that I've worked with over the course of the last, whatever it is, 13, 15 years now. What are you diagnosed with? Oh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, like depression, maybe anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder. Yeah. Or whatever. That's the number one. It's very anxiety rare that NOS. they actually know. Yeah. And I'll say, oh, well then are you on medication? Oh yes, I'm on this and that. And that. I said, okay, well your doctor would have diagnosed you with something to get those medications. <laughs> yeah. That but they don't, they don't know. Yeah. They don't end up knowing. And so the more people, the more times that you can have a conversation with your doctors about, what they've diagnosed you with and then know that and then know what those, I mean, come on, I'm just advocating. And now we've just gone completely off the rails. Down a rabbit hole. I'm down a rabbit hole. Of diagnosis. Thank you so much. I have multiple personalities. (laughs) We call this one Shanoon. (laughs) Right on. Thank you. We tried to discuss the Netflix documentary, but shit, (laughs) but we did in our wheelhouses we're not going to comment this, on isn't this part more exciting than the actual documentary though it was to me i mean at least talking about it. documentaries hopeful. meh you were super passionate in your descriptions of the courts yeah and your ngi lingo yeah i got in there not guilty by reason of insanity now you all can go out there and say oh he's ngi and be really fancy (laughs) we'll be right back we're gonna talk about uh our horror watches next thank you for listening
banging my head. You were. Oh, yeah. Bang your head. Bang it. Woo! <laughs> she looks ridiculous, but you can't see her. Okay, hello. Thank God for that. Hello, we lost some talk. listeners. <laughs> You're like, only you, only for you. We are back, and we are going to talk about our most recent horror reads and watches now. We sure are. You are singing about a book. She yeah. was singing in the break to me about the book I she was reading. I hadn't introduced it to you. I was just singing singing to you i know book. i want to know what it is okay please i'll, I'll tell you do oh now she's mocking me yeah because you went like this i know but you make funny faces all the time okay that's, okay okay mocking me again we're gonna do some mocking then go ahead go ahead mocker have you ever heard of a no. neuro oh, god <laughs> you started it go ahead go ahead have you ever heard mm. of, oh God, her name is Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. And no, she is not related to me. Okay. Although I wish she was because she sounds kind of like a, a real badass. Amazing. Okay. Um, she's done some really great work in neuroscience. Great. And I started a book called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by her. Um, she is a professor of psychology at Northeastern who also has uh, work over at Harvard medical school. And this book is sort of an introduction to the evolution of the brain and emotion and epigenetics and um, things like that. I just started it. Uh, I was talking to someone the other day who I was just talking about the book and she, she was a client of mine and she said, Oh my gosh, I, I just listened to a podcast that she was on with this other guy who's also like incredibly well known in this field. And um, the reason why I find this stuff really fascinating is because, you know, I work with a lot of trauma. And so um, she has a lot of really great work out there. So anybody that's interested in this sort of stuff, her name's Lisa Feldman Barrett. And the book was released last year and it's called seven and a half lessons about the brain. It's a pretty quick guide, kind of an intro to some of her work um, or an abbreviated. Well, it's colloquial. It's like accessible to the general yeah. public as opposed to it sounds a little like an academic. But. Yeah, it, it is academic. And it starts with just, you know, even the beginning of the planet and what we did to survive and how our brains evolved over time and what we think the brain does versus what it doesn't do and comparing it to other species. So it's cool. Yeah, no, it yeah. sounds really interesting. I'll be, I'll look forward to your whole review. I'll bring it in here when it's over. All right. So I finished my yearly reread of Stephen King's on writing a memoir of the craft. If you are a writer Ooh. and you love writing, you have probably read this book and you may have read it more than one time. I have several books that I visit and have relationships with when I'm getting in a writing jag and on writing a memoir of the craft is by Stephen King. And it's, and it's one of those ones. And by the way, he does the audible book. He does the audio version of the book as he has done with several of his books over the years, but he does this one and it's a lot of fun because of course he's reading about writing. <laughs> he's reading his own book about writing. And so he's very passionate about some of the passages. And so you, and he does voices and stuff. <laughs> So this time I listened to it on Audible just to mix it up because I read it pretty much every year. So it's uh, the first half or the first mm, maybe 35 percent 
is memoir-like, but it's all writing memoir-like, like about his writing life. And then the last half is all kinds of tips and tricks and things, not tricks, but tips and things, rules to live by, rules he lives by That's that cool. might help you. And if you've read a lot of books about writing, then you know that most writers have some commonalities and some very different ways they work. So it's always interesting and inspirational to do that. That's cool. The other book that I am not done with, I am probably like 65, 70% of the way through almost done with it is a book called Awakened by James S. Murray and Darren Wearmouth. And it's a horror novel. It's a creature. It's a creature story. And it's book one. I think there's three. After years of waiting, New York's newest subway line is finally ready, an express train that connects the city with the burgeoning communities across the Hudson River. So set in New York, set in the subways, that's very much the first chapter is there's a bunch of peeps on a subway. The shining jewel of this state-of-the-art line is a breathtaking visitor's pavilion beneath the river. So it's an underground part of the subway. Major dignitaries, including New York State's mayor and the president of the United States, are in attendance for the inaugural run as the first train slowly pulls in. Can you imagine having the president and the mayor on an underground train at the same time? And no. what a security risk that would be? No. Well, it doesn't go well. <laughs> uh, <laughs> under the station's bright ceiling lights the shiny silver cars gleam but as the train comes closer into view a far different scene becomes visible all the train cars are empty so this literally happens in the first chapter so I'm, it's not giving any way oh and also the car's interiors are drenched in blood hmm. oh interesting fascinating and the thing I will tell you is that it's a it's creatures if you like creatures it's awesome with the creatures i've got some thoughts uh, flaws in the story which i will go into when i'm actually done with the book but as far as the scenes with the creatures awesome and plus we've seen so many creature features in our in our lives and aliens one of my favorite movies and stuff i'm envisioning them i pretty, love that pretty like clearly in my mind yeah. so i'm enjoying that i have no idea if i'll go on to books two and three it depends on how the story wraps up it's not sure yet. I like the intensity and and just even the uh, mm -hmm. the deliberateness about your thought process as yeah. to whether you will continue. These are important choices. Important choices. Yes, they to are. be made. They are about how we spend our time, especially reading, because it takes so much longer than just watching a movie. It's a true story. All right, what did you watch? I watched a movie from twenty twenty. <laughs> Good start. <laughs> um on netflix called cadaver okay it's a norwegian horror film in the starving aftermath of a nuclear disaster a family accepts a charitable offer which turns into a sinister game i really liked this great i'm trying to think of what to compare it to but what happens is, is this apocalyptic thing happens after this nuclear disaster and this very wealthy gentleman starts to take in people who have nothing left and promising them a new life mm -hmm. inside of this mansion. Got it. Right. And you're going to get food and you're going to get shelter, but you need to become part of this group. <laughs> culty, right? very culty. As the story progresses, the heroine mm -hmm. starts to 
lose her mind a little bit because she can't find her daughter. Mm. Um, then, you know, what they were having for dinner, they're starting to figure is, you know, maybe people. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just gets <laughs> more people. and more uh, morbid and mysterious and visually it's stunning. And I just dug it. I yeah. thought it was a really fun kind of creepy way to do you know i'm kind of over the apocalyptic stuff yeah i'm not a subgenre of post-apocalyptic yeah. stuff isn't my fave but if it's done really well well and, and because you only see that at the beginning and then it transforms into the mansion and it takes place you you sort of forget that that's that's it's, really just what started the story yeah like why why do they it gives them the reason of why they find themselves in exactly there. it's like the excuses to why um, yeah. but i dug it i thought you know it, it had some mixed reviews i think most people had you know favorable things to say about it but um i just i thought it was cool and the way that it ends and the things that you find out about about the guy who put it all together you start to get it's character driven in the sense that they go into depth of these characters and you care so, yeah. Oh, yeah. well, that's good. Yeah. Well, that's always a good thing. Yeah, it's, it was good. <laughs> and not necessarily given these days. Right. So I was able to catch Lamb. Oh, I almost saw that yesterday. What'd you think? Uh, 2021, it's called Lamb, horror fantasy mystery thriller. Uh, yeah, with Numi. I know. Girl, she's doing Numi. some good stuff right now. Yeah, she's great. So it's 106 minutes long. And most of the reviews are good. A childless couple in rural Iceland, which had me, you had me at Iceland because yeah. I love the northern so vibe. gorgeous. Right. Rural Iceland make an alarming discovery one day in their sheep barn. They soon face the consequences of defying the will of nature in this dark atmospheric folktale, the striking debut future feature from director Vladimir Johansson. So I am not going to spoil this movie, and thus I cannot say that much about it. Did you like it? I loved it. Yeah. It's the most A24 of the A24 movies. Okay. So if you like A24 movies, if you're into a bit of artistry, to your horror movies and not as much geared towards i don't know i don't want to insult anyone <laughs> i'm gonna take it back it's just not empty i'm excited to see it for i mean obviously for her but the storyline as well it just looks really great what i can tell you is yeah you have to open up your mind to it right you have to sort of accept a few things it's a slow burn mm-hmm. it's not a gore fest or anything mm-hmm. like that I believe that they stuck the ending, in my opinion. Okay, that's so good. So that's great. And it's got the northern vibes. Everything's very dark and hazy, meaning there's no sunshine ever in the whole movie. Yeah. Well, no, I'm sure there was a little bit, but not really. She's fantastic. Always. There's a couple of other actors in it, of course, that are fantastic. And yes, I would say watch it. I know that some people are kind of really love A24 movies. They definitely have a visual style. And I know that some people are like, ah, fuck A24. It's too artsy. Well, this is artsy. Yeah, so you better be ready if you're <laughs> going to see it. <laughs> yeah, but I, I was able to catch it, so it was great. Anyway, what's next for you? Uh, the other one I watched, uh, 2021 on Prime, called Bloodthirsty. Mm-hmm. A Canadian horror film directed by Amelia Moses and released into festivals in 2020. An indie singer whose first album was a smash gets an invitation to work with a notorious producer, Vaughn Daniels, at his remote studio in the woods. 
Together with her girlfriend, Charlie, they arrive at the mansion and work begins. But Gray, the main character, is having visions she is a wolf. And as her work with the emotionally demanding Vaughn deepens, the vegan singer, I think it's hilarious they put that in there, um, <laughs> begins to hunger for meat and the hunt to vegans. They're like, that's the ultimate horror right there. Yeah, it's like that movie um, I watched Raw recently. Yeah. yeah. As Grace starts to transform into a werewolf, she begins to find out who she really is. So obviously there's like a ton of double entendres in this. <laughs> um, you know, it was entertaining. It had its moments. The transformation was kind of cool. I felt like the buildup was better than the end, unfortunately. Um, but I, it's worth a watch. Okay. It was fun. It was fun. I mean, that's good. I like werewolf movies that actually have werewolves. And I've, I mean, lately we've watched some films with werewolves and vampires and we're like, these are just people with teeth. Yeah, it happens. I mean, fangs, we all have teeth. Well, and so, most of us yeah, have I was going to say, I have teeth. <laughs> uh, am I a vampire? So no. yeah, the, the hung, her hunger and her transformation, I think it also speaks to what happens when we really immerse ourselves into work in an unhealthy way too. So there's a lot of metaphors clearly, right? Usually. And yeah. that's, and that's great. Yeah. What I don't want is, well, I've watched a few movies that have tr a transformation subgenre to them, whether it's werewolves or something else where they decide that they're going to be quirky and interesting. And so they're quirky and interesting. And it's very like, you're intrigued. You like the characters. They're a little bit funny or they're a little bit interesting and you're kind of following them. It's sometimes it's coming of age. Sometimes it's, you know, relationship driven and you're like, great. And then you, what you're doing is you're like, I will accept that and be entertained by that. If you then give me werewolves, right? But so many of it, it's like, there was one I watched recently where that was great. Movie was great. Fully entertained. Getting to the, like the last 15 minutes. I'm like, okay, dude's going to transfer, transfer, transform here. And then we're going to have that payoff. And they're going to like, was that the one we watched on discord? Probably. It was off. We're like, where's the wolf? But it was such a cute, wonderful, quirky, lovely atmosphere and movie up until the fact where the last 15 minutes, there was like a shot of his foot transforming underneath a bathroom stall or something. Yes. Yes. And yes. I was like, okay, so. And we were ready. We were like, here it comes. Yeah, because it was so quirky and like a and wonderful then, little movie. Like this, pff, like Boom. in the wind, it was just. Boom. And we can't even remember what it's called. It's That's like, it was called problem. wolf or I'm like yeah. it, it had the wolf in yeah, the title. Yeah. And I, I'll look it up while we're It made me here. as mad <laughs> as I got at World War Z zombies. Where are the zombies book? Oh. Not movie. The movie was good. Uh, oh no, I understand. They, they were like for the movie, we can't just sit here and interview people like yeah. a documentary, <laughs> but actually that lead me leads me to say we should chat just briefly about how we, you know, as you guys know, we just recently read Rosemary's Baby. But then I think since we recorded last, we then watched the movie over again in the discord with our book club who read Rosemary's Baby. Mm -hmm. And we were just we just watched it again and mm -hmm. sort of how different that was. Sure. I think. For my for my perspective, and it sound seems like the group thought the same, was that I one was more attentive to the movie. Oh, like I watched it much closer. Oh, absolutely, and with much more interest. Although it was harder to watch after following how great the book was. So then the second thing would be that the book is so great. Yeah, and that Roman Polanski did his thing, and that's great. 
but that the book was so good. Yeah. In a simple way, in a really simple way. Was that your kind of impression too? Yeah, 100%. I thought it was incredibly well-written. It keeps you in the state of suspense the whole time, even though you know what's up. Oh, that's the thing, right? We've all seen Rosemary's Baby three, four, five times over the decades. And then we're like, oh, we should read the classic book. We read the book and it's like, wow, this is so good. And then you read the movie. It was like watching a new movie for me. Yep, it was for me too. And even though I can say the book is better in this instance, not always, Mm -hmm. but the book is better in this instance, I would also say that the movie is better because I read the book. Yeah, like for I'm, sure. I'm, like I would watch the movie again someday in you know, a couple of years or whatever. I would watch it again because of that. I agree. Because I have this fund of knowledge about the book, which is so interesting. Yeah. I just wanted to make sure that we talked about that. Yeah, it was, it was great. I really recommend the book, Rosemary's Baby. Right on. Thank you guys so much for listening. This has been an episode of Terror Talk. We so appreciate you. And if you want to hang out a little bit more with Uh, us. Whoa. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. What happened? We're going to do. Guess what? Guess what we're going to do, kids? (sighs) (laughs) I got you to sing it again. And you blew out your mind. Shannon That's just amazing. didn't want to go through the answer she didn't have. No, I just, I really, I was like, oh, what? What? We're doing something else? Oh, okay. All right. Well, I do. I think, well, I don't know. I get, I made some guesses. Okay. Let's do these. There's only one that I absolutely know. The others are guesses. <laughs> Number well, one, the I Japanese giant hornet has venom so powerful it's said to do what to a human? Is this the like Asian death hornet one? Uh, I uh, I don't know. Okay, because I, I mean I've I'm watched... assuming so with what it does. Okay, so I've watched documentaries on this, so okay. I this is why it's a guess, or this is why I thought I knew. But if we're talking about a different hornet, then not so much. But there's the one hornet, the death hornet, or whatever it's called, that goes into the colonies and de- well, it decapitates all the little baby bees. Okay, but you asked what it does to humans. Yeah, and I'm gonna say it certainly doesn't decapitate them no because it's a bee uh (laughs) it's bee-sized i was gonna say paralyze them it actually melts their flesh oh the venom melts their flesh different hornet yeah okay both sound terrifying (laughs) right number two when a person dies what's the last sense to go well i thought about this i I had a moment where I thought, well, would it be smell? It wouldn't be taste. It wouldn't be other things. I don't know. It's either smell or hearing to I, me. I had a dream once that I was shot and I felt my, it was very real. And my, my head fell on the passenger side of my car and my vision went and then slowly I mean, it felt very real. I thought I was dying. I, I said in my dream, I'm either dying or I'm about to wake up. It just felt so real. And little by little, all the sounds around me started to go, the volume started to go down and down and down and down, and down until I woke up. Um, and it is hearing. And so after having that dream, that makes a lot of sense to me that that may be, especially if someone dies that quickly like that 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 would maybe happen right yep yeah makes it makes sense but you know sense uh, things don't things don't always make sense when they make sense they don't are we making sense yeah number three okay
The man who wrote Michael Jackson's thriller originally wanted this horror icon starlet slash starlet to record the spoken word segment that was ultimately delivered by Vincent Price. Barbara Crampton. Elvira. Oh, sure. That would have been cool. Although, been, although different. Vincent Price. I mean. What is Cotard's syndrome, number four? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about, of course, words that it rhymes with, which we won't say. So I was thinking, okay. Could be Cotard. Know. I'm not sure how to say it. Yeah, I don't know either. But so all I could do was like look at the word and the, you know, root of the word or whatever. So I'm guessing it's something along the lines of something that is something that's slowed and or dead or. Ah, dead. Okay. This is weird. Yeah. It's otherwise known as walking corpse syndrome. Oh. It's a condition wherein the patient believes they are dead, dying, or missing parts of their bodies, or they don't exist. Some people will stop eating or speaking since they believe they're dead. Oh. Yeah, so it's a delusion disorder. What a weird delusion to have. Awful. Awful. And in most of the horror movies that we (laughs) Yeah. So Kathy's going to show up one day and she's going to be like, I'm so sorry. We have to plan my funeral. I'm, it's great that you can talk to me, but, but I'm I dead. am dead. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm dead. So Number, we still do the podcast. We still do the podcast. <laughs> I mean, everyone can still hear me. Right. Well, just, just a ghost. Dead cat. How do you know I'm not a ghost? We just don't. We don't. Again, you know, patient report. It's very dicey. It's true. <laughs> Number five, what percentage of people dream entirely in black and white? Yeah, I was thinking about this too. Again, I thought it was higher than this. Again, I guess, right? Most people I know, you know, I went to a depth in psychology institute, so we did a lot of dream stuff along the way. And a lot of it was in color, you know. And, and I think people have the fallacy or whatever. They believe that the dreams are not often in color. And I have the opposite experience because of where I went to school and talking to people mm-hmm. that are talking to and hearing a lot of dreams. So I would I- intentionally think it was a lower percentage. Okay. But, uh, I I've just know. heard a lot of people say, Oh, I dream in black. And I'm like, really? Yeah, a lot of people don't report their stuff accurately in that world. I find, yeah. Oh, I don't dream. They say, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Sorry. So what do you have? So I, w- I would just guess like 20%, 12%, 12. Okay. Yeah. I overshot it a little. It's all right. I forgive you. Okay, cool. Thank you so much for listening. I'm. We're really going to go this time. <laughs> we are. We're going to yeah. take off. So sorry, but we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. You know, become a member of the Discord, I mean, of our Patreon, and then join the Discord if you like to hang out with us, watch movies, read books, etc. We would love, love, love to have you. It's a very welcoming committee. And other than that, this has been an episode of Tarot Talk. My name is Shannon. And I'm Kathy. Sleep safe, everyone. (laughs) 